Welcome, I'm Sirius Afshar, and this is the Wigo's Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. In this podcast, we will analyze some of the most pressing issues related to the linkages between informal economy and social protection, including debates around workers' health provision, pension schemes for older workers, as well as childcare systems and other social protection policies for informal workers in order to improve their livelihoods. And in this month, we go back to the ground to understand how the livelihoods of informal workers are being affected in two of the countries in Latin America most hit in the region by the COVID-19 crisis, Mexico and Peru. We invited two guests who are working closely with informal workers from Mexico, Tani Espinosa, Mexico City Focal City Coordinator at Wigo, and from Peru, we bring Carmen Roca, Lima Focal City Coordinator, also from Wigo. They will analyze the main challenges on the implementation of the emergency cash grant policies to protect informal workers' income, the problems of government responses, and some of the possible solutions to address these issues. And now, let's hear our talk with Carmen Roca and Dani Spinoza. Carmen and Tanya, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much for having us, Cyrus. Hi, Cyrus, Tanya. Thank you for having us. Now, Carmen, let's start with you. In Peru, the government has approved an emergency cash grant program for vulnerable people of about $110 or 380 soles. Then they extend it to informal workers. How was the government able to make this grant reach informal workers and what were the main problems that emerged in the implementation of the policy? Yes, Cyrus, there was a cash grant that was announced at the beginning of the lockdown and it responded to a general claim of support for people who earned their living on a daily basis. However, that first grant was supposed to reach only people living in poverty or extreme poverty. And although it had a good intention, it didn't realize that the directories that the government has available for people in poverty or extreme poverty are very good for rural areas. But in this case, we needed the grants to reach people living in cities. And the directories were of really poor quality for urban areas. So... A lot of people with which we work, and in general, there was a claim that the grant was not reaching people who needed it. So we did a lot of advocacy locally. It was, it was needed to have something for informal workers. So what the government announced after probably three weeks or a month was that there would be a second cash grant for independent workers. So you would assume that this would reach the population with which we work, but there was a problem with that one too, because the government only wanted to use state-generated data. So it had to have information that somehow was approved publicly by the state or that there was a decree approving a list of people or something like that. So none of the registries of associations was used but the information that government had about who is on payroll, either private or public payroll, who has a contract with the state and 
people who were beneficiaries of other social programs, the regular cash grant program for the poor or the non-contributory pension plan, they could not have this grant. And it was a very modern way to get it paid, given the low number of people who have bank accounts here. The way it was established was that you go into a website, you type in your national identity number, and you get a message whether you're a beneficiary or, or not. If you are, you get a code, and you can input that code, you can enter it at any ATM or at a bank teller. However, there have been still a lot of people who have not received the cash grant. So it has had problems um, with the information, the directories of people. Mm. So one of the main issues involved the registration of these informal workers. What the government could have done to reach informal workers more rapidly and more efficiently? So the things that we were proposing, Cyrus, was the use of the lists of associations that are actually registered with the state. There's a national registry here, a public registry, where everything is registered. It's notarized. So any association that exists has its members and the people who are in charge of the association listed there. So it's, it's public data in the sense that it's, uh, it's official, but they didn't want to use that. We also have lists of street vendors, shoe shiners, market workers, market porters, and other sectors at municipalities, because it's the municipality that issues the license for these workers to be able to operate, or the municipality has the association registered way speakers as well. So there should not have been an issue for using that data, but it wasn't used because it wasn't considered to be official because it wasn't ratified, as I said, through a decree or something like that. We also talked about the possibility of having workers register voluntarily at that moment in a tax scheme that's a very low tax to be paid monthly. And it's actually zero tax for people who sell fresh vegetables or fresh fruit around markets. But that wasn't allowed either. So it was very constrained in a way. And that's why so many people were left out, because maybe they are not part of the databases that government was using. It was supposed to reach 780,000 people. We don't have the figures of how many people have actually cashed the grant so far. But as I said, you know, there were real problems in, in reaching everybody who should have gotten it. And in any way, the cash grant has been issued only once. So you could get it in two payments or in one payment, but it's supposed to last for a month. And our lockdown, we are in day 102, I believe, today. So as you can tell, in any way, it wasn't enough. Mm. So we are in, in the end of June. Um, we are recording this in, on the 25th of June. And what is the status of the policy? Is it a one-time lump sum or is it going to be going on for a longer time? Yeah, it's just one payment, just one time. So you could get it like for 15 days, you know, the $110 and then go again uh, for the second payment after a month for the other half, the other $110, but it's just one time. Yes, yeah, so it's really insufficient. We have been 
interviewing people for an impact study that WeGo is conducting, and we are seeing that people who did receive the cash grant have already, you know, finished it and uh, are having a hard time because people are still not allowed to go out to work. So some people are actually exposing themselves in a time of high contagion still, just because there is no, no way to generate income. Mm. So let's turn now to Mexico and bring Tanya to the game here. Tanya, in the case of Mexico City, the emergency benefit was not a cash grant, but a voucher. Is that right? Uh, can you explain how did that work and if and if this measure was effective to protect all informal workers' livelihoods in Mexico City? Well, in the case of Mexico, the support that the government has given to workers basically depend on the occupational group. So in the case of non-salaried workers, which include, for example, shiners, artisans, musicians, magazine vendors, among others, the Mexico City Secretary of Labor has a cash transfer called Apoyo Emergente or Emergency Relief, which basically consists on 70 US dollars approximately, which was initially only one transfer that later changed for two transfers. So as Carmen said, it is very difficult because right now we have more than two months in quarantine. And also the amount is a very little amount for the workers. The requirements for that one specifically in the beginning was an online application process, which made very difficult for many workers to apply because many of them don't know how to read and write or do not have internet access and face difficulties to fill out an application. But later, the government changed to another option to hand a paperwork and personally. So that made all the process easier for workers. So the other thing is that for that one, you need a valid license to work. And many workers do not have a valid working license because of many reasons. It could be because they did not finish the license application on time. They were denied licenses, although they continued working or they started the application process, but never got an answer from the government. And the other thing is that they needed to be residents of Mexico City. So many of the workers that work in Mexico City are not residents of Mexico City, but live in the periphery in the state of Mexico. So due to all the requirements, a big percentage of workers from the sector ended up being excluded. That's the case of non-salaried workers. But then if we talk about domestic workers... The Mexican Institute for Social Security created the Solidarity Support, which is a trust-based uh, credit that consists of 25,000 Mexican pesos, that is approximately 1,000 US dollars, to be paid in three years with a 6% interest rate. And the payment per month equals 823 pesos, which is more or less 37 US dollars. Also, the requirement is an online application process. And the other requirement is that you must be affiliated to the Social Security Institute. So in that case, 
well, the domestic workers would be getting a debt to be paid for the next two years, and that isn't necessarily a relief measure. The other thing is that according to the national census of Mexico, there are 2.3 million domestic workers, and only 22,000 are affiliated to the Social Security Institute. That means that only 0.9% of domestic workers are eligible for the credit. And until June 6th, only 2,000 domestic workers actually access the credit. So it is a very small percentage. And then the other thing to say is that if they have to be paying 823 Mexican pesos a month, it could be a significant burden for workers because it, for many of them, that's an average weekly income. And then for street vendors, also the federal government launched a 100,000 trust-based credit. In that case, it's also 25,000 pesos with 6% interest rate to be paid in 36 months. And... There, the objective is to encourage uh, the tianguistas or the street vendors to stop working, in this case in Mexico City, and avoid agglomerations. They, in, in that case, they have three month grace period, and at the fourth month, they have to start paying. Uh, the requirements are first to have six months minimum of operation and located in the 16 municipalities of Mexico City. They must be registered at the municipality. Yeah. And here it's important to say that the Mexico City government stated that a census was made by the hand of the 16 municipalities. And it was clarified that the credits were going to be given directly to street vendors and not through the leaders of organizations of street vendors. Well, there the challenges are that the mechanisms to actually reach workers are questionable. Then, according to the government, the census was carried out, but MBO leaders in different municipalities announced that none of their workers were contacted or included in the census. Also, there is no further information on how the credits were distributed or how many tianguistas actually got it. Well, that's, that's very interesting. These loans, they don't really protect in a sustainable way the informal workers' livelihoods, right? Because you're, you're relieving their livelihoods for, for some three months, but then after that, they will carry a burden for quite a few years that not necessarily they will be working the same as before, right? Exactly. Exactly. Mm. And I have a, another question for you, Tanya, um, about this case of Mexico City. So in the case of Mexico City, if I understood correctly, the policy is not from the federal government, but it's from the municipality. Uh, what were the main issues of not having a national-wide policy instead? So in the case of Mexico City, you have a mix. So you have, for the non-salaried workers, a program of cash transfers that was stated by the Mexico City's government. And you have, for the domestic workers and street vendors, the credits stated by the federal government. So, for example, here we could see that the, the credits for domestic workers and 
street vendors started very late. So, for example, just in May, they were announcing that these credits were going to be available for them. But by then, there would be more than a month that they were not able to work. So they didn't have basically money to, to survive. So, yeah, there is a lack of a national-wide policy that protects the whole group of informal workers in the country. What we have noticed is that basically each state of the republic, we have 32 states, adopted different measures. So basically it depends on the government of the state to protect the workers or not, because at the federal level that wasn't happening. And what happened was the, the credit support which, as I said, is not necessarily a relief. Now Mexico is currently, now we are in, in June, end of June, Mexico is one of the countries in Latin America currently facing an increase in cases and deaths. Uh, are there any perspectives for a national-wide emergency cash grant policy to be implemented? And if not, what have the informal workers' movement have been demanding to push the government to better address to their needs? So, yes, there is an initiative that has been pushed by the legislative power and also by a coalition of organizations requesting the president to adopt a national policy of emergency cash grant that the amount would be the same as a monthly minimum wage which is more than what they are receiving now locally. The proposal basically states that this amount should be given to the workers that lost their income. It could be formal workers, but also informal workers. And also they are proposing to have like very easy requirements and also to make it urgent, like urgent delivery. Yeah, this is this is a proposal that has been pushed, but I haven't seen any will from the federal government to adopt it. Also, it is important to say that it has been stated that there is a viability to do it because it would be only one percent of of the income of the of, of this of the country. So. Yeah, that, that's what, what we have. Okay, well, thank you, Tania. Uh, Carmen, what about in Peru? What have the workers' movement have been doing to draw attention to the shortcomings of the government program? Uh, what are the main demands and criticisms they, they point out? Cyrus, you know, at the beginning, uh, let's say until early May, We started our lockdown March 16th, so for about two months it was inclusion in the cash grant, basically, and in many cases also the need to start working. So, because as I said, there were so many problems with the databases used for establishing who was getting a cash grant or not, uh, many people were not covered. And they were uh, anxious to get back to work. Now, our quarantine was extended until the end of this month of June. And recently, the claim is just to go out and work again. So you, you can see on TV, on national TV, every day, 
um, reporters talking about street vendors, showing images of large numbers of street vendors on, on the streets. If so many people have lost their jobs, their formal jobs, you can imagine they are all finding refuge in street vending on top of the numbers of street vendors we already have. So this is the easiest way to create an income, you know, any day for anybody. So those are really, really large numbers of people going out to the streets, uh, not respecting the lockdown anymore. And that is something that you know, the police and the army are accepting right now because for a long time it was just moving them from one place to the other, but they realized they were not going to go home. So several mayors are trying to find solutions, but they're showing also their lack of knowledge of this sector. For a long time, it was recording videos on Facebook to show their demands. It was also participating on interviews from uh, written press through a campaign that several sectors of informal workers developed together with legal support. So it was on Twitter, on Facebook, it was interviews, it was daily postings of like flyers for each sector, showing the main two or three demands that each sector had, and showing also what they were doing in the case of workers who were working. So for example, we had markets operating and we had newspaper vendors working. So both were asking for support in keeping their clients at enough distance from themselves and not creating, you know, large numbers of people coming at the same time. And also for getting enough protective equipment because everybody's buying their own face masks, their own face covers, uh, their own alcohol, you know, and the material to have everything disinfected. So in the case of markets, they are doing this on their own and they're saying we're fine doing this on, on our own, but we need some forces support to keep people in an orderly way to come into the markets. And the newspaper vendors who were also allowed to work, they were asking the paper companies, the newspaper companies to provide them with some protection equipment because they are their sales channel and they were working, although less people were on the streets, of course, because we are under lockdown, but they were still working, bringing the news from government to, to people. So those were the, the main claims. We also had waste pickers, you know, making a plea for allowing them to work. It hasn't actually worked. They're still under lockdown. So it's a, a really difficult situation to keep people away from work for so long. As I said, the main demand right now is to be allowed to work and not to have, you know, restrictions that are in a way irrational. For example, waste pickers are now being asked to have some sort of fumigation equipment, thermometers, amounts of cleaning products that when you come to make a budget of all the things that they are being asked to have, it comes to $3,000 per association. So you can imagine nobody has savings anymore at this point after more than three months of lockdown. And it's impossible to go out to work with those demands. On top of that, they're being asked to have a tax number, and that means going to the tax office and doing the process to obtain one. So it's a difficult situation while everybody tries to adjust, doing a balance of, of what is the health requirements and also the financial requirements of going back to work. Mm, to conclude, I would like to ask you both the same question. What are the main challenges now for informal workers in the current stage of the pandemic in Mexico City and in Peru to protect their health and livelihoods. So let's start with you, Tanya. Uh, 
This is a difficult question because it is a very problematic time for workers, especially for those who work in, in the public space. Because, for example, in the case of street vendors, they really want to go back to work because they are facing, of course, income issues. But at the same time, the contagion here is very high. So if they go back to work, they would be in a great risk to be infected. And at the same time, basically, well, it's not that the government is giving, bringing them equipment or something like that, but asking them to use that equipment. So it's not only that they don't have stable income right now, but they also have to spend money for protection and also they have to take the risk to go out. And in the case of domestic workers, it could be uh, very similar because uh, normally they need to use uh, public transportation, for example. Inside the households, they, they need to be in contact with several people. So they are also in, in a great risk, but at the same time, they have to work. It is problematic because if the only solution is to get the credit, then they are going to be facing, or probably they are going to be facing economic problems after the pandemic as well, because they would need to pay that. So, yeah, I would, I would say that the challenge right now is to, to have a national policy, as we talked before, uh, that covers all the vulnerable workers, that many of them are in the informal work, to cover them not only in this crisis, but a public policy is stated to cover them and, and to help them to face any crisis that could come that make them to lose their income. I think that that would be our goal now. Excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you, Tanya. Uh, Carmen, uh, you want to jump in? Yes, Iris, it is a complex situation, just like in the case of Mexico. So the main challenge in terms of protecting health is, of course, the prevention. So having the proper equipment and, you know, here we are forced to wear a mask. You cannot go out from home without wearing a mask. You will be taken by the police if you are not wearing yours. So in that case, everybody's going to be wearing one and somehow everybody has made one available to themselves. There is the issue of distance as well, and there is the issue of vulnerability of certain populations. So among street vendors, which is the most important sector of employment in Peru, not only among the informal workers, but in general in employment of Peru, we have a lot of elderly people above 60 years old, people, some with diabetes or other conditions that make them especially vulnerable. So it's a risk for them to go out and be exposed. So the best measure to balance both the need to generate income and to protect health is to allow for a space to work where you can have a proper air circulation and you know the best is to be out in the open so to be out on the streets and the best would be you know to do what markets have done and several street markets have done which is marking the sidewalk with a big circle where the clients should stand and where you are placed as a vendor and there's enough distance for the two of you to exchange the product and the money without becoming to be too close. However, municipalities are not in favor of people being on the streets selling because there have been some street markets that have been quite disorganized, you know, too many people coming at the same time. We are precisely in the time of change of season. We're going into winter. 
So a lot of people were buying wholesale on the streets to sell somewhere else, sweaters, socks, you know, whatever you can imagine that's useful at this time of the year. So we need these to be organized for people to be preventing infection, but also being allowed to work. And the same applies to markets also. Markets have been operating, but only to sell food items. So, you know, the other stalls should be opening soon. Apart from that, the big challenge, as I said, is, you know, being able to operate. The big challenge for the people that we are talking to right now is that they have depleted savings and any amount they had in working capital has also gone. So actually having some access to a small loan, and I'm talking about as small as maybe, you know, less than $100, being able to access that capital would make a big difference because you could buy some merchandise and start working. And that's all they need. You know, everybody that's talking to us is saying, how are we going to start work again? If we don't have enough money, everything we have, we're using for food. And, you know, food baskets that we have received are what are saving us these days. So, you know, it would be great if these big programs to recover large enterprises could be adjusted and have something special for the very small self-employed workers who are on their own, without capital, but will be going out to work again. So that would be something that could help as well. Dania and Carmen, thank you very much for your time and for uh, agreeing to participate. Thank you very thank much, Cyrus. <laughs> Thanks, Dania. Thanks, Carmen. And if you want to learn more about the government responses to the COVID-19 crisis to protect informal workers' health and livelihoods in Mexico City, Lima, and in other parts of the Global South, we will leave some links at the description of the episode. If you liked this episode, we recommend you to listen to our mini-series on the COVID-19 episode 13, 14, and 15. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. I am Sirius Afshar, and this was the Informal Economic Podcast, Social Protection. See you next time.